Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 2, Episode 5, In the Sticks, with Willie Little. There are ways of saying things as you mature that aren't necessarily hitting a person on the face. I have so much to say, so I will keep on saying it the best way I can. Today we're going to hear from Willie Little, a multimedia installation artist from North Carolina. His work is rooted in Southern traditions while contextualizing and crossing racial and racist boundaries with layers of humor, irony, complexity, and contradiction. He critiques American social dilemmas while identifying universal experiences. He's had solo exhibitions at Smithsonian Institution in Washington, Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, Afro-American Cultural Center and Noel Gallery in Charlotte, American Jazz Museum, African American Museums of Philadelphia and Detroit, California African American Museum, and the Pounder Cone Gallery in Los Angeles, SF MoMA in San Francisco, and the Froelich Gallery in Portland. In this episode, Willie discusses his career, themes and issues he's exploring as a queer Black artist from the South, and the path to publication of his newest art book and memoir, In the Sticks. Hi, my name is Willie Little. I am a multimedia installation artist and storyteller. And my work has evolved from trying to make sense out of my life, who I am and where I come from, to making sense out of how I fit in the world. So the work kind of, the process is very shamanistic where found objects tend to find me. I just conjure them up. And as a storyteller, I some of my work, I would create narratives and become characters. But in this one exhibit called Kinfolks about my family's tobacco farm, there was a piece I wanted to create called um, Aunt Rachel or, oh, it was called Get Me a, Get Me a Switch, Get Me a Switch. And it goes, and the narrative audio goes like this. Aunt Rachel, oh, Aunt Rachel, born in 1898. She raised Cousin Jimmy Lee from a child, and when he had been showing out, she'd wait to the right moment, bedtime. As soon as he was buck naked, she'd take a switch and turn him every which way but loose. Now, in that piece, there was a copper clock that I wanted to be the centerpiece for this clock. So I went to the flea market, walked in, went to the booth, the first booth, there was a clock. I was like, oh my God, but it's black. I wanted a copper clock. Went to the next booth, bam, there it was, copper. Then I wanted to have wood, reclaimed wood, and in my neighbor in my neighborhood, I'd go the same way every day. But I decided to turn left. There was a stack of wood, just like a gift from the gods. So I usually conjure up work, things for my work, and that makes me know that I'm on the right track. I have written a book called In the Sticks. It's a memoir and an art book, and it's a coming-of-age story, a memoir about how I grew up, who I grew up with, and what I experienced the first few years of integrated schools and who I became. It's a coming-of-age story of family dynamics, uh, folks from a time gone by, told with a really keen eye. And it's all about growing up and growing beyond the shame of youth to the pride of an adult. And 
It's about how art became my destiny as I created my past in this exhibit, Juke Joint. And it is an installation about my father's illegal liquor house and the patrons of Little's Grocery in the late 60s and early 70s. And in that exhibit, I describe like snapshots of life, the sights, the sounds, the smells, and the people whose existence is vividly ingrained in my memory. And I had 12 mannequins. I had uh, artifacts from the 50s and 60s and a jukebox, and I became the characters. Uh, and it had a narrative audio track where I would b- breathe life into a warm, humorous, yet seedy depiction of a slice of rural life. And that exhibit traveled around the country for several years, and it culminated at the Smithsonian in 2003, but now it's in the permanent collection of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So I'm so proud to have it that part of uh, something I created in the um, permanent collection of the Smithsonian. I created the narrative audio track with a professional uh, uh, production. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, it is a 320 square foot shotgun shack that's a replica, a three quarter scale replica of my father's illegal liquor house. So when you walk Mm -hmm. in the building, you are walking in a juke joint. It has the walls. They have the four walls, the faux front with all these uh, signs, signs and memorabilia from the 50s and 60s. And it has a jukebox inside and the 12 characters. And it has food like uh, penny candy and canned goods. It creates, it's a grocery store in there too. The thing is, I had written three grants to make this work. And the, when I got the, the second grant was the largest grant. And, and I talked to an administrator and she said, Willie, when you apply for this grant, what do you want to get out of it? And I said, well, I want, when you walk into my exhibit, you'll know that you'll know what a juke joint is if you've never been in. She said, well, you should write it like that. I said, well, I guess I will. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I got the grant, and, and, the, and the work evolved. And I found out that the more specific a story is, the more universal it is. It was 15 years, and so many people walked up to me telling me I was telling their stories. Mm-hmm. So it was, as it was my story, I thought I was just creating my story, but they said they said it was a more universal story, but I had no idea. Because I tell stories with intricate details, and the intricate details lend themselves to people experiencing a similar thing. So when I talk about my first day of school and my first year of school, most of the things are that happened to me are common to what what everybody experience the bullying and or or being teased and then because I tell it in such detail people will say oh my god that's my story too and I did that when I I talked about some of the characters in the juke joint too I I, I described their figure flaws their foibles mm-hmm. and and like I said the more specific it is the more people say that I know someone like that or that's me 2003 to 2004 was actually the final 
that was with the last time it it the it was what I thought was the last time it was going to show, but it uh, it was at the Smithsonian. It was selected to be in the Smithsonian the Arts and Industries building. While it was there, it was reviewed by the Washington Post, and it was a, a wonderful cover uh, review in the art section. And then uh, after that, because it was in the Smithsonian, they I got wind that they were building this new African American uh, museum, and I and and I got in contact with the curators there, and they said, please update us on if every time you do something different to the exhibit. They called me in 2010 and said, Willie, we're getting close to uh, a sessioning work, and they said. Can you exhibit it? Do you have another exhibit? So then uh, in Winston-Salem, at Winston-Salem State University, I knew the curator there, and I said, oh, my God, uh, Belinda, can you help? Yeah. And she said, yeah, I need a bigger venue. (laughs) And she made it work. So I had the exhibit there, and, and I just made it the best it could be. And then the whole team of the Smithsonian came, and they had their pad and notepad and they white gloved it and then my heart was beating fast and then they said Willie and I said yes she said we really like your exhibit and we like to invite you to be in the permanent collection and I went I was like oh my god I was so happy (laughs) I think I wrote my first story in 1992 and it just kept growing, and I knew that as long as I said, as long as I can remember everything, I'm gonna write it down. I started writing, jotting down. I had a first full story that came just like butter. I, I, it wrote itself. There are a few stories that wrote themselves, but then I would take notes, and and whenever I see things on television or in, in films or in books, and, and to give me an idea of how I want my story to come together, I would do it. I met your I met your 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 friend. Yeah, Mo. Yeah, and and she because I always ask people anyone who I think could help me. Yeah. Do you know a publisher? Do you know an agent? And I and I and she connected me with Curator Love in L.A. The company is is run by a woman named Erica Hiragami and. She helps artists realize their dreams because she's a curator and a publisher. Mm. So that came together. It was so serendipitous. I had had an exhibit in San Francisco, and my partner and I were about to leave. Mm. And this comes this beautiful chocolate sister, and I and we started talking. And that's a year and a half later. I'm getting my book published, and I received a grant, and that grant helped me. Um, realize getting realize the book getting make sure that the book got published so I was really grateful for that because I had already written I had written the book and the book had been finished and and somewhat pared down the the story was great Mm -hmm. so it was all about getting it published Mm -hmm. because it paid the cost for the printing and the layout and the editing because the uh, curator love did did everything to make it a beautiful book Uh, one of the things that made it difficult to probably get it published through the mainstream was that I wanted it to be an art book and a memoir and and I think that 
the costs involved and with a mainstream company, I would have to be someone really, really famous in order for someone to, uh, a publisher to want to do that. So that, um, that was the best, the best way to make this happen was to, to self-publish it. And the thing is, I, I felt really lucky about it because another friend of mine who's an artist at the Froelich Gallery, the gallery that I'm represented by, had just had a book published and he did a, a book launch at the gallery. And I said, oh, well, how did you get that book published? As I had to ask everyone else. And, and he said, oh, I was, it was self-published. And that gave me the idea also. So he did a great job with his book, Stephen O'Donnell, and I have uh, followed in his footsteps and created a, a memoir art book. The book can be purchased at uh, lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, and amazon.com, and curatorlove.com. I don't mind saying that I'm 58 and I'm gay and black, and I'm originally from the rural South, and all of that, every bit of who I am is affected by how I talk about work. I have, as a gay man, I have an affinity to women. Most of my work is about women because I feel that the woman is the integral part to civilization, and the black woman is the cradle to human civilization because especially in America because I believe that she raised America figuratively and literally up until the 20th century mm -hmm. so and then being so marginalized and teased and bullied as a very sensitive uh, gay black boy from the south I carry that with me and as I moved to the West Coast over 18, 18 years ago I feel liberated and I feel that I can say it like I mean it and mean it like I say it because my work is so defiant and I take no prisoners because I tell the truth as I see it. So that's one of the things that, and I and in the book, I tell the exact truth about the people and people who bullied me, and how my family was so uber religious, and how I felt so ashamed to be gay, and I would hear the ridicule, and I kept so many secrets, and I revealed that, and it's. There's so much pain, and I hope that that work, the stories and the words I, I tell, inspire young black men from the rural South, especially because there's such a stigma behind that whole thing of being black and gay in the South. So that really, because there's, I, I've, there, there are stories that have been, many stories have been told about the gay experience, especially coming out today, but yeah. very few, and I don't know any that really deal with the gay black men in the rural South. And I have 
many stories because this book deals with it from my very early earliest um, from a from a young a young boy to a young man and there's so many other stories that could not be put in that book because this is a childhood memory mm-hmm. memoir and I hope that I will be able to tell a more layered story about how I grew up in the rural South. So I think this is just the beginning. I knew that I had a story to tell from a very young age, and I know that I have not finished telling the story, and I know that I want to reach as many people as I can to tell many more stories about how I grew up with the most honesty and truth. The thing is, and uh, I know one of the things you wanted to talk about is who is your audience. And, yeah, yeah. And my audience, it really ranges because of the subject matters. It all depends on the subject matters, and it ranges from personal history to social commentary. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, two people were kind enough to, because I've only had the book out for a while, Write a review, mm-hmm. and I like to read a little bit of what what someone said. She said, oh, yeah. um, "I love this book so much. The writing is so descriptive and beautiful. You feel like you were living living it with the author. The artwork is so great, and it really helps tell the story. Willie's life growing up is so different from mine. Yet there are so many things that were the same." Playing outside, going to church, getting penny candy and soda, being scared at school, playing with Barbies. And things were so different, like being bust as a part of desegregation. The juke joint, growing up Baptist and working in the fields all summer vacation long and being black and gay in the South. And obviously this woman was not black. She was not gay. And she said it was a page turner for her. Uh, the other thing about my audience, because there's so many different audience members who have been moved by my work, the work, the juke joint installation traveled to Dallas, Texas, and a woman walked up to me with an African accent. She said, oh, Willie, thank you so much. When I walked into your exhibit, I, it took me back to the Shabins in my native Togo, Lome, Africa, thank you so much. And then a professional, I think he was a doctor, a a man walked up to me, he said, Willie, I was once ashamed of where I came from, but you validated my existence. Then when I had this exhibit at the Froelich Gallery, the, the exhibit called Not a Doll, Living Doll, that was the exhibit where I saw, where I saw Mo, it, it was, there was an eight-foot-tall painting of a beautiful black woman with Nubian knots. Nubian knots. Uh, uh, her hair was naturally uh, beautiful, and she was wearing a white Victorian-inspired gown. She's so elegant, but there's a chain wrapped around her waist, and at the bottom of the end of the chain is a red AK-47. 
this young white girl from Beaverton was standing there in tears. And she said, Willie, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. I totally get it. Thank you. And during the same uh, reception, a young white boy, because he was really young, he said, and he came up to with me with a big smile on his face. The title of the, the work is Not a Doll, Living Doll. And it has these, these insulting and degrading Piccaninny dolls that I reclaimed. And they uh, sit alongside portraits of beautiful black women in the 21st century. So he just, he said, are you the artist? I said, yes. He said, I get it, the dolls are the women, and the women are the dolls. So I was like, yes, you get it. And he just had, he was so elated because he got it without me. He didn't read anything about it, but he understood that this, this work, with this defiance, describes the, the trials and tribulations that the black woman has to, has endured and has to endure. And then the final thing about the whole audience is that I had an exhibit called America's Whispered Truths at Clark College. And I, the students were talking to me, and at the end of the talk, a young black woman, she was a student, she probably was a freshman, and she was so quiet and shy, very meek, and she said, Mr. Little, I want to tell you that my I was, I, I was adopted by white parents. And while they tried to fill in the blanks, this work helped me fill in so many blanks. Thank you. Yeah. So like I said, my work has such a broad audience and it has many layers. And some of it is layers layered with humor to disarm because my family and I always had to laugh because it's better to laugh than to cry because when you are in your your situation is can can be bleak but it's not good to wallow in that but see the humor in almost everything and I get my sense of humor from my birth mother who never who didn't raise me but also my the woman who raised her which who was not her blood uh, relative either but she had a wicked tongue so I get it from both people, my sense of humor. Mm. So my work always has to have some irony or parody in it as well. Mm -hmm. I'm affected by everything I see. Everything that's going on, for example, when I lived in Oakland, between the years of 2014 to 16, there were, there were many instances of, of, of black people being shot by police. And in Oakland, this downtown Oakland, they protested every week. Oh, Almost every week, you would hear the helicopters, and I would get more and more, more angry about it. And, and I remember... Uh, uh, Representative John Lewis, who used to work with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said in an interview, he said, when I was a young man and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stopped me 
in the office one day in, in the, uh, where, where we were working. He said, son, if you see something, say something or do something. And I decided that I'm going to, because uh, I've seen stuff and I'm saying things and I want to do something and I wanted to create that work, the work called Not A Doll, Living Doll, where I use the, these issues, talk about the issues of gun violence and race in the 21st century. But the future, the absolute future, I want to be really hopeful, but right now, I have a sense of rage. And, and it's so unnecessary because I remember when I graduated from high school in 1980, I tried to project to the year 2000 because I thought the year 2000 was so far away. And because I was the first, my class in 1968 was the first class to experiment with desegregation. North Carolina eased the state into desegregation with the class of 19, the first the first grade class of 1968 and I described that whole first year my first day of school and we had made strides there I, I was the first class to go with people from grade 1 to grade 12 in an integrated situation then I was about to graduate and go to UNC Chapel Hill the school of my dreams and I thought that, I projected, I said, this world would be so different. It would be a, it would be a post-racial society. Cut to when, actually, actually when Obama was elected, mm -hmm. that was absolutely great. But when I think about the backlash to that and where we are now, it seems I have that sense of rage and then I remembered the quote from James Baldwin, and it says, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. And the fact that he said that when we were called Negro and it's still, and it's still relevant, it says it all. Mm -hmm. My desire as, a, as an artist is to continue to tell my story and, and, and tell that story on the grand scale through uh, film or stage. And I, cause I always knew I had a story to tell and I wanna, I won't, I won't stop. And I think I, I'm still alive because I have much more to say. Actually art documents what's going on through, throughout culture. It, because this, we're living in a moral moment, people are really responding to that moral moment through art, and we have an explosion of of creation going on right now, self-expression going on right now. So we'll look, I mean, people, you'll look back use and see and, and examine the work that was created because of what's going on in the culture right now. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it fuels me because in my process, I, I actually spend a lot of time alone thinking about work before I do anything. And when I get quiet, at the quietest time for many artists is, is the hours between two and three in the morning. That's when things flow, words flow, ideas flow, and it becomes, things become crystal clear. And that's when I, when I know things are going to be extre extremely powerful when I 
once I started creating from that point, and then I started going in as if I'm not even thinking. I'll, I'll put things together. I'll draw them. And then almost as if on autopilot, once I'm done, then I can dissect all the layers. And there's so many layers because it's, it, nothing is intentional. But then people will tell me they'll see all these different things in the work. For example, I created this piece called That Strange Fruit. And it's a portrait of a black woman. She is taking a bite out of a watermelon. And the watermelon has these stars on it. It's, the watermelon is the American flag. And I was creating that because I, we had moved from from uh, Oakland to Portland and I had the work in a storage locker and I would fly to Oakland and work on my exhibit because it was going to be at the SF MoMA Artist Gallery. Mm -hmm. So in this cramped space, I'm painting on stars and stripes on a watermelon. So because, and I wanted them to be perfect. I wanted the, the stars to be perfect, but in that cramped space, it wasn't. And when I finished, they looked kind of cattywonkers. So, but then when I, fin when I finished and looked at them, I said, oh, look at the stars. Some of the stars look like clan hoods. So, and then the flag was actually backwards the way the flags is usually presented. So I'm like, well, how about all that? So it, it, it spoke to the nature of America and some of the stars rep represent the, the, the different kinds of people and some of them are um, racist um, bigots and, uh, and wear clan hoods. So that, I said all that to say it looks like I intentionally did that, but it just all happened because I'm just working. But then the, those there was because there are other layers that I actually intended to kind of create, but yeah. these these were like like gold. One of the things I can say about my role as an artist in Portland is that it's I mean it's very white, and um, I know that I think my role in Portland is to broaden that perspective and make some people feel uncomfortable and it does it makes some people feel uncomfortable it makes some and it, and it actually educates people and it inspires people and some of it makes people it makes people laugh it makes people um feel and i think that's one of my my roles there are ways of saying things as you mature that not, aren't necessarily hitting a person on the face. Because I've got I've gotten this past work with the Not at All Living Doll was actually I I kinda went more into kind of in your face defiance. But mm -hmm. a lot of times the work is all about um seducing the audience before mm -hmm. you with the beauty and then have the message be layered in Within, uh, in 2000, I, I had a residency in South Africa, and I was there for a whole month. And I created these prints, these um, these limited edition prints, and it was called "God Giving Birthright." And then there was one piece that was kind of in your face. It was the um, 
Second Amendment on a, and they were the three shopping bags. They were upscale shopping bags, and then uh, there was there was one that was the Second Amendment with little, little tiny guns in the in the background of the second the the Second Amendment that was part of the bag. But I also created one that had little tiny crosses. And then it had passages from the Bible layered on top, and and there was a uh, little cross burned in in the passage, and the passages, but 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 many because the passages were specific to um, women in the uh, clergy, uh, sexuality, mm-hmm. all the things that that people. Um, Used as their crutch to justify bigotry and hatred, yeah. but people, they many people who were really religious would walk up, to, would buy, bought the work because it was so pretty, and they had no idea, but it was really talking about the those um, hypocritical passages. Right. But that, but that was the beauty of it. Mm. I got I got across my message message subtly with the beauty. I think this industry is a really difficult one. If if I didn't love to make art, I wouldn't do it. Um, my art is my life, and my life is my art. But I do believe that one of the things that's really important for artists is to, if they want to want to make it as an artist, is to show up. I mean, show up for for many things. Just show up every day you can to make work. Show up with people you want want to build relationships with, so that you can show work. Um, and to show up, once you start getting funding, one of the one of the worst things to do is to get rejected and give up. Don't give up. If you want funding, apply every year like you're paying your taxes <laughs> because they will see they will see you and see your growth and get tired of you and give you some money <laughs> just show up and i love to give sage advice to anyone who wants to listen because i have had very good advice given to me upon people who really want to see me succeed. Mm-hmm. So that's my advice. That's really good advice. Especially, yeah, for me as a, um, I produce the podcast, but my main art form is poetry. Mm-hmm. And you just get rejected so much. Every day, yeah. every day. Yeah. Thanks for sending us your poems. We're not going to publish them. And then finally you get that one acceptance and you're like, wow, I'm I'm in the news. Yeah. You know, but it took so much heartache. It, do- it does. <laughs> It does, but yeah, just, just, I mean, really just continue to show up because I, I applied for this one. I mean, I've got, I've not gotten it, but I've applied for, for, for one so many times, but I just keep doing it. And when another, my, my best friend just got, um, a Guggenheim mm-hmm. and he applied every year for several years and, he, and, bef- and, and well, he got a, a Guggenheim and a creative capital, oh, but wow. he, but he has, a, and you know, that's what you do. You continue. And then, um, for the, the, for the grant, I got to go to the headlands. Uh, I got that. That was what 
what brought me to California mm -hmm. in 2002. And I think I applied seven years in a row. And, and the last three years, I was uh, on the wait list. And then I was honorable mention. And then the third year, because the, the last two, they invite you to do the personal interview. And then, because that second out of the third year, I was on, I was an alternate. They're like, if no one, if no one, uh, if someone, you know, backs out, then you can go. And then the, but then the third year, I was so prepared. I because I had, I was so ready with my, with all my answers, and I had all the ducks in a row. And then they, they said, Willie, you know, you you don't need to work so hard, baby, because you've already, it's. You know, you got it. Basically, you got it because they were so, because I was so diligent and, you know, going back. But I was just, I'm like, I'm going to show you how good I am. But the other thing, I mean, you know, I, they, they didn't, they didn't say it like that, but I, I kind of, like, kind of got it because there's a, there's a fine line between being, being too much and, and, and not being enough. But um, the other thing too is, one of the things I think that some artists have a misconception is you shouldn't, do not take your work into a gallery to say, can you exhibit my work? That's not how to do it. That's not how to do it. You will never, they will, they will turn around and roll their eyes. So Tell don't again. ever do that. Okay. That, what's that, what's ha a better way? that happens in, that happens in film, in, in movies, but well, Build a relationship with them. Be seen. Come and, and and talk to talk to them and get them to know get to know them, but never get to no never go crazy, um, trying to show them how great you are. Just talk. Mm -hmm. And then the other way is to have someone refer you, mm -hmm. because but I know that if you never. If you've never shown before, that's always a catch-22, but yeah. you just have to kind of keep showing up again, just keep showing up, and then then just building a relationship. I think that's the, the best way. You can see more of Willie's work at willylittle.com or follow him on Instagram at willylittleart1234. We have a live show coming up this April for Design Week in Portland. We'll post details about that very soon on our social media channels. We also have our first merchandise available. You can buy hats, mugs, and tote bags emblazoned with our official slogan, Keep Dreaming and Scheming. They're $20 each and can be found on our website, futureprairie.com. Thank you to our production assistant and sound engineer, Matt Larimer, for his assistance in putting this episode together. As always, if you have any questions or feedback about this show, you can contact us through our site or reach out to us on social media at Future Prairie.